0: i think i heard you all say good that's good it's good it's tuesday night we're midweek well we're not midweek yet tomorrow will be midweek but we're inching over towards midweek towards that weekend i want to thank you all for coming my name is charlotte i'm going to be your host for the next hour and i've got sand hat dangling everywhere here see there we go does she look like this no different look off the side okay anyway i'm going to be your host for the next hour I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state, and what that means is that we can get to you anywhere you're at. So if you have a paranormal problem, feel free to contact us on Facebook. You can find us on TikTok, you can find us on Twitter, you can find us at Instagram as well. Uh, if you're watching from which reminds me, if you're watching from Facebook today, please be sure you know to uh, follow, to like, and hit that follow button, especially if you like what you see in here and if you're watching from youtube today i forgot to put youtube out there to find this if, if you're watching from youtube today there's a little ghost in the bottom right hand corner of the screen over here see if i can aim it there we go see right there right there click on that and then i'll bring up that uh red subscribe button uh we have more than 450 videos sitting over there just waiting for your perusal and as you can tell by tonight's topics i don't like to stick to the paranormal all the time so i will vary the topics and uh I think there's a little something over there for everybody. So if you go over and start poking around the videos. You'll you'll see something that you like. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. We're your money back, right? Anyway, if you want to find us on Instagram, uh, it's under Ghosty Gal G H O S T Y G A L all lowercase, and we are Cal Haunts on Twitter and California Haunts on TikTok, and that's all lowercase. And, of course, for California haunts over here on YouTube, uh, on Facebook and under my own name. Anyway, my guest tonight is a former police officer, former detective with San Francisco PD. And he, um, Frank Felzone. and he's uh, investigated quite a few cases that you might know about. The Zodiac, the Night Stalker, and a few others. And he's written a book about that. And so we're going to be talking to him about those particular two cases. Plus, we're going to be talking to him about his, his, his new book tonight. So I'm real excited to have him on. I used to be a, I spent five years as a crime court reporter on the, on the beat in, in Woodland. And uh, a lot goes on in small towns. You'd be surprised. You'd be, you know, I shocked about how much stuff really went on, you know, in, in Woodland. What got me was like along the I-5 corridor out there was the accidents. A lot of accidents out out in Yellow County, off out by some more and stuff. It's just it and and yeah, you'd be surprised what goes on these I I was shocked. You know, I didn't think it was going to be that that big of a deal um taking that crime beat out there when I did do it, but uh I quickly found out that there's a lot that goes on whether it's, you know, you know, crime or accidents or whatever, but it's just stuff to follow and I was busy. I was very busy. I was writing 3 to 4 stories a day, you know, when I wasn't in court, sitting in court all day covering courts. So um Yeah, so I have some knowledge about this. Anyway, I'm going to go ahead and call Frank. It's going to be a phone interview. It's going to be a phone interview today. And um, we'll uh, go ahead and dial him up. Get the show on the road. I still say I need some dialing music, right? Here we go. Hello, Frank. Uh, Charlie? Yes, sir. How are you? Good, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. I'm so excited to have you on here.
1: I'm sorry I missed that.
0: I'm really excited to have you on the show. Oh, I'm excited to do it for you. Tell me a little bit about you. I understand you were a detective with the San Francisco PD, correct?
1: I, I did uh, 28 years with the San Francisco Police Department. 22 of those 28 years as a homicide inspector, uh, working over 300 uh, murder cases in the city of San Francisco.
0: So that must have been really interesting. I'm, you know, myself, I spent five years uh, on a crime beat in Woodland, of all places. But uh, what I was telling people before I brought you on was how um, people don't realize how much crime there is in a small town. I mean, something like San Francisco must be incredible.
1: Well, uh, the period of the 70s and 80s in San Francisco was virtually unreal. Uh, The city's a first-class city, but the underbelly was totally exposed during the 70s and 80s. We had the SLA. We had the Black Liberation Army. We had the Patty Hearst kidnapping. We had the Zebra. We had the Zodiac. We had the Night Stalker. It was one crazy case after another. yeah, the best way I could describe it is uh, it was murder on
0: steroids. Wow, it's it sounds like it, and then, you know, because like I said, from experience, just the five years I spent on that news beat out in Woodland, it seemed like stuff was happening all the time. And people don't don't realize how you know how much it does happen.
1: Well, what people don't realize, Charlotte, is they they go to bed at night and. People that don't want to go to sleep are out on the street committing crime and entering people's homes, causing all kinds of havoc. And it's the police that have to respond and take care of those situations. And most citizens have no clue as to what has transpired. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Can you kind of tell me what goes on during an investigation? Because I know a lot of people, you know, they're all like glued to their TV sets watching CSI and all this. But what, but what, 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 what goes on during an investigation?
1: Uh, Are we live right now? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, I'll I'll take the uh, the Night Stalker case for an example. Okay. Uh, Richard Ramirez. uh, This this case was unlike uh, any other I had ever worked. Uh, We knew that Los Angeles County was hitting uh, and getting a barrage of walk-in murders. Uh, He was known back then uh, as the walk-in intruder. And it wasn't until there was a murder in San Francisco involving the Pan family, uh, Asian couple, Barbara and Peter Pan sound asleep a little after 10 o'clock in their home. And uh, Richard Ramirez climbed through the basement window after prying the window open with a tire iron, climbed into their house, went up the inside staircase, uh, entered their bedroom, shot Mr. Pan, killed him while he was asleep, shot Mrs. Pan and while she was moaning and groaning in pain, he raped her. Uh, He then left her to die. He went into the, uh, the kitchen area and ate their food from the night before and then drank their milk and then regurgitated it on the kitchen floor. This sick animal then went into their living room area. And with a knife, he etched a pentagram, a large circle about three feet in diameter, and also a star. And underneath it, he wrote Jack the knife. And then he pleasured himself, obviously praying to the devil. Mm -hmm. He was a devil worshiper. He believed any heinous crime he committed, was only buying protection from the man that he worshiped, the devil himself. So this was a very, very sick man. When we walked into that case the following morning, we had no clue as to where this case was gonna take us. Uh, That Monday morning, we got the break that every detective looks for. A very sharp uh, Sergeant named John Perkins, Glendale Police Department, contacted my partner, Carl Klotz, and start talking about one of his LA cases. And when he mentioned uh, a 22 caliber bullet with a pink primer, uh, that, that's kind of rare. And it was exactly what was used in our uh, killing of Mr. Pan. So we knew that we had a link now with this man known as the Valley Intruder or the walk-in killer But once the link was made, the media immediately changed the name to the Night Stalker who was going from Los Angeles to San Francisco and everywhere in between. It was this uh, uh, manhunt uh, turned out to be one of the biggest cases in the history of the state of California. Uh, This was every cop on, on alert trying to catch a man known as the Night Stalker. Uh, we flew down to Los Angeles, my partner Carl and myself. We spent three days working with both the LAPD and the LA Sheriff's Office, cleaning everything that we could. Every document that they had built up on their 15 murder cases, we would grab a copy of it. And with all that information, we came back with the biggest piece of information was the fact. That the night stalker had a first name. The name was Rick. Mm-hmm. And the way they found out about this, uh, two LA uh, detectives shared the information that a solo motorcycle cop had stopped what they believed was the night stalker. And when he was interrogating him, uh, this individual gave a dentist card uh, with the name Rick on it as identification. When the cop started questioning him some more this individual bolted jumped a fence ran to a playground and got away from the solo motorcycle officer so that charlotte is how we got into the case we came back to san francisco knowing we were looking for uh, a mexican male wearing an acdc hat uh, a members only jacket real bad teeth curly hair uh smelled And he had a first name of Rick.
0: This is so interesting. And this is the stuff that people don't know, you know, what happened behind the scenes with this. So as as you started to investigate and and compare the notes, you know, with the LAPD, what became really apparent about this guy?
1: I'm sorry, I missed that question.
0: What became, you know, as you started to get into the investigation, you know, and and you guys knew that he was down in L.A. and and up up in San Francisco. What stood out for you, you know, about the case?
1: Well, I, I I put all the pieces together along with my partner, and it was pretty prevalent that this was a, a burglar, a uh, hot prowl rapist, and a murderer. So I pulled all reports in San Francisco to see if there were ever any similarities in the last couple of months. And bingo, we got a hit on a home out in uh, the Marina District, Very well. Uh, affluent area, uh, a dentist, uh, his home was burglarized. An individual crawled through the bathroom window after building a makeshift ladder. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was determined to get into this house. What, uh, the individual didn't know is that Dennis's, uh, niece and her girlfriend were downstairs in the house asleep. And he's crawling through the bathroom window. And he's gathering all the property that he could stuff into a pillowcase. And at some time, the dentist and his wife come back home. He hears the garage door opening. He goes to the window. We know this because the drapes were ajar. And he was looking out, watching them pull into the garage. They'll never know, and neither the people downstairs will never know how lucky they were. Because mm-hmm. as the dentist and his wife were coming up, From the garage, uh, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, was going out the front door. So that burglary, we got a break uh, down in Lompoc, California, which is halfway between San Francisco and L.A. There was a sergeant down there, a man named uh, Jack Hyde. Uh, He had uh, an informant turn in a bracelet. It turned out to be a bracelet from the dentist. And on that bracelet, the dentist had carved his driver's license number. So we had an immediate hit on a stolen bracelet taken from that burglary. We assumed it was Richard Ramirez. So we went about trying to put it all together. I called the sergeant. I told him I had to talk to his informant. It was paramount that I speak to his informant. He said, look, uh, Inspector, uh, I'm not giving up my informant. Uh, I'm just not doing it. I already shared the information with San Francisco, and your burglary detail did not feel like it was pertinent. Mm -hmm. And I said, look, um, with all due respect, Sergeant, I'm going to make myself perfectly clear. And my voice was raising, and uh, all the guys in the detail were looking at me, I said, if I have to come down there personally, I'll put you in handcuffs if I can prove you withheld evidence on this case. This case is so vitally important to everybody in the state of California. We don't want anybody to die this weekend. Mm -hmm. He Mm -hmm. says, calm down, inspector. Calm down. He says, I'll tell you what, if my informant wants to talk to you, he'll call you back. But within minutes, his informant called me. I found out that he got the bracelet from his mother-in-law, a lady named Donna Myers. She lived over in San Pablo. So the decent thing to do was uh, I grabbed my partner and another inspector named Mike Mullane, and we headed over to San Pablo. Uh, We stopped in and saw the uh, chief of police of San Pablo Police Department, told him we were gonna be working in his area. And he offered one of his best men, uh, a man named George Spencer, and the four of us set out to find Donna Myers. When we found Donna, boy, every question I threw at her was like hitting a home run. She was giving me every answer. Yes, uh, Rick wears an ACD DC hat. Rick wears a members only jacket. Rick has bad teeth. Boy, so we said, Well, how did you get the bracelet? She said, Well, his best friend from El Paso, Texas, is my boyfriend. My boyfriend's name is Armando Rodriguez. Okay, I asked Mike Mullane, the inspector that left with me from San Francisco to stay with Donna Myers. And my partner and the officer from San Pablo, we went over to El Sobrante, which is uh, a short uh, drive, the very next town. And we went to the residence where Armando Rodriguez lived. Uh, We were confronted with a 10-foot-tall steel gate, and the house was set back up a road and up on a hill. So I looked across the street. It was the El Sobrante Fire Department. Walked across the street. I called the house. Armando answered. I begged him, Armando, please come down to the gate. I have very important information for you. I'm from the homicide detail. I let him, and I try to lead him to think I had information about someone in his family. Mm -hmm. So initially he said no, and then he says, "Okay, I'll come down to the gate." Well, when he shows up at the gate, he's got two Toberman pinchers, both growling at me. I looked at him. I said, "You know, Armando, I'm I'm not going to stand here and give you some important information." with two dogs growling in my face. I said, come out from behind the gate so I can talk to you. I started to walk away and I started walking towards the San Pablo police car and I turned around and there he was and the dogs were on the other side of the gate. Wow! I sighed uh, a great uh, amount of relief. I said, Armando, I need your help. He says, what do you need my help for? I said, well, your best friend Rick is the night stalker. We believe him to be the night stalker. He says, "Oh, and he uses the F word. F you, uh, you mother effer." And he goes off on me, swearing one swear word after another. I said, "Armando, please. I need uh, his last name. That's all I need. Give me the name." So I'm not giving you anything. He says, "I know my friend's not the night stalker." People being murdered in L.A. when Rick is with me in San Francisco. And when he's with me in San Francisco, people are being murdered down in L.A. So I know it's not him. I said, it's not your job. It's my job. Let me clear your friend. Do him a favor. Give me the name. Let me clear him. F you. I'm not giving you nothing. I come down. He has no weapons. My partner instinctively opens the back door. And I place Armando in the back seat of the San Pablo police car. The San Pablo police officer gets in the driver's seat. My partner gets in the back seat next to Armando. I'm sitting next in the front seat next to the San Pablo police officer. I lean over the back seat and I said, Please, I'm begging you. This case is so important. Too many people have been injured, murdered. I said, The count is unreal. Every weekend, somebody's being murdered. Every week, somebody's being murdered. Please help me. Give me the name. And I got another barrage of swear words, one after another. And he looked at my hand, and I had rested my hand on the top of the front seat, and it was in a ball like a fist. And he raised his hands up, and he says, F you, you mother. And you think you're a tough guy? You want to fight me? And his hands are up. And I learned a long time ago, once somebody's hands come up, they're challenging you to a fight. Mm-hmm. All I remember is my right hand flew into the back seat, and I hit him right uh, below his left eye, and he fell over on top of my partner, Carl. He had a small cut, and my partner immediately pushes him back up. And Armando dabs with two fingers the cut under his eye, and he sees blood. He starts screaming. You see what you did to me, you mother. And he doesn't stop.
0: Wow.
1: He says, is that as hard as you hit and hit tough guy? Is that as hard as you can hit? And I remember looking at him thinking, this guy's insane. And I said, no, no. But I'm going to show you Armando how hard I'm going to show you how (laughs) hard I can. I'm going to split you from the top of your head all the way down to your behind. Pretty boy. And I started over the seat as if I was going to throw the most vicious punch in the world. He threw his arms up and he said, Richard Ramirez, Richard Ramirez, that's the name. Those two words broke one of the biggest cases in the history of California. Those two words solved my murder, my partner's murder and the murder of Peter Pan and his wife within 24 hours. We had an arrest warrant, a search warrant, and we recovered all the stolen property from our San Francisco cases, and also from all the Los Angeles cases. It was amazing. Uh, That night, uh, we did a three-way broadcast, the L.A. Sheriff's Department, uh, the L.A. Police Department, and the San Francisco Police Department. And I remember the three chiefs were on the phone with their detectives, and Sheriff Block from the L.A. Sheriff's office said, have your men stand down uh, until my men can work up their cases. My chief looked at me and I said, like hell, we're going to stand down. I said, we stand down on somebody's murdered this weekend. Mm-hmm. And everybody in the Hall of Justice at San Francisco knows we have an arrest warrant. How's that going to look in the media? So my chief repeated what I said. And I give Darrell Gates a lot of credit because he says, Your men are 100% correct, Con. Tonight at 10 o'clock, we all go public. And this was on a Thursday night. Saturday morning, Richard Ramirez was in custody.
0: Wow. And I flew back down to L.A. with my partner, and
1: we placed our murder warrant on him so the L.A. uh, Sheriff's Department could work up their cases.
0: Here's a question. Why do criminals, I mean, Los Angeles is a huge area, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles. Why does a criminal like him even leave Los Angeles to come up to San Francisco?
1: Well, what I was told uh, is when it would get hot in the L.A. area, Mm -hmm. he had a safe house up in San Francisco. He lived in the Tenderloin on uh, Hotel Bristol uh, down by Eddie and Turk Street. Uh, So he felt he was safe in San Francisco uh, and everything cooled down in L.A. He would head back down there and vice versa uh when he was up in san francisco he would pull residential burglaries and we would find out later that we missed two or three murder cases in our city so what we ended up finding out is that he was responsible for five murders in san francisco and over 15 in the los angeles area a very prolific psychopathic killer Mm -hmm. a devil worshiper who felt anything horrible and decrepit, that he could do was honoring his god, the devil.
0: Did he randomly pick his victims, or you know, did he watch them before he would go in, or how how did he do that?
1: I'm not quite understanding that question, Charlotte. Oh, okay,
0: did he before he would go into say say murder a family, would he observe the family ahead of time, or or was it just a random thing?
1: You know, we never did find that out because he never did talk to the L.A. Police Department or the sheriff's department. Uh, He never gave up any information. He did make a confession when my partner and I were booking him in to the uh, San Francisco prison. He was en route to San Quentin after his trial. And our district attorney asked uh, for him to be delivered to San Francisco so we could place our charges in case the LA cases were overturned on an appeal. Mm -hmm. So when we had him upstairs in our city prison and I was finished booking him, the two bailiffs were taking him back to the holding cell. And he turned around and he said, and I I was heading towards the elevator. And he said, Hey, Falzon, he says, you'd like to know about those two old ladies, wouldn't you? And I looked at him and I was kind of puzzled. And it didn't register at first. And I said, what are you talking about? He says, you know what I'm talking about, Falzon. He says, the two old ladies up on Telegraph Hill. And he raises his hand and shows me the pentagram he had drawn on the palm of his hand. Mm. And he says, that was me, Falzon. That was me. And he starts laughing at hideous laugh as the guards took him away. And it was six months prior. Uh, my partner, Carl, and I had a... Double homicide of two old ladies up on Telegraph Hill—the uh, Caldwell sisters—and sure as heck, once we looked into it, he was—he was the killer.
0: Wow, and, you know it's incredible to think that you know once you got things rolling, it happened so quickly to get him. Because I mean, he'd been like on his own so long, right? Yes, uh,
1: the thing I'd like to say,
0: Charlotte,
1: sure. is my partner and I wrote a book. Mm-hmm. And this uh, book that we wrote is called San Francisco Homicide Five Henry Seven.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The five stands for uh, the five stands for the inspectors bureau. Henry stands for homicide, and I was number seven in the unit. Mm-hmm. Uh, our book it just was recently released, and it's getting rave reviews, and it's selling uh, quite rapidly. In fact, the San Francisco police officers association purchased 500 books and they're going to use it as a textbook and also as a history book. Uh, the book is titled again, San Francisco, homicide inspector five Henry seven, my inside story, the night stalker case, the city hall murders, the zebra killings, Chinatown gang wars and a city under siege. And that was pretty much what was going on in the seventies and eighties in our beautiful city of San Francisco.
0: Well, let me ask you this: I've, I've got a photo of your book up right now, so everybody can see it. Um, tell me about the Chinatown gang wars. Well,
1: the Chinatown gang wars: we had the Joe Boys and the Watchings, and one was a local group, and one was from uh, China. And these gangs. Uh, they were led by leaders that uh, were quite prolific in extorting money from anybody and everybody in the Chinatown area. And when things could not be controlled, the gang wars between the two uh, would take place. Um, it, it was something else. The Chinatown cases, that, that was truly organized crime. Uh, but beyond that, the one case that nobody talks about Charlotte mm-hmm. and it lit up the San Francisco newspapers was the zebra murders. Okay. The zebra murders were happening at the same time as the Zodiac case, but Zodiac only killed one person, a cab driver in San Francisco, mm-hmm. but he got so much attention because of the cryptic messages and the cutting and tearing of the victim's shirt and sending messages to the San Francisco Chronicle. But the zebra, the zebra killings uh, were unreal. Innocent white people, just because of the color of their skin, were shot and killed. And I I know we had over 15 uh, in San Francisco. Historians now say the zebra killings during that era was probably closer to 72 people up and down the state. Uh, One night, uh, it's daylight savings time, my partner and I are out working a case, and we hear gunshots. And uh, it's right around the corner. We turn the corner, and there's a young student, a uh, young blonde white girl, hanging out of the passenger side of her door. My partner runs over to her. I grab the microphone. I put out the hottest call on a police radio. It's a 406. I had units. Flying in from all over the city to that area, I'm putting out that the suspect's still in the area. There were shots fired. A young woman is hanging out of her car. Please send an ambulance. Code three. Within minutes, uh, uniform officers start stop a uh, tall, very muscular, skinhead black man who was sweating profusely mm-hmm. and had just ditched his jacket in a garbage can. Uh, They recover the jacket, also recover a weapon, turned out to be the murder weapon of this young girl. Uh, This was the first arrest made on the zebra killings. Uh, There would end up being four men arrested, charged and convicted. Um, It was an era of unreal uh, expectations, I guess, for a homicide cop. I always wanted to work the big cases I got more than my fair share. Uh, It was a very interesting time in the San Francisco Police Department.
0: When you say that it was four men, were were they copycats or were they all in it together?
1: No, these were not copycats. What this was was a hate group, and it was tied to uh, a group out of the uh, uh, Temple on Geary Street, Temple of Islam. And this was a select group of individuals that felt... They wanted to start a race war, and the best way to do it um, was to kill people randomly, uh, no rhyme or reason, just walk up and execute them, Mm. and that's what was happening. In fact, one of our mayors uh, who survived, his name was Art Agnos, he was a victim of the zebras. A man walked up, he was leaving a community meeting, walked right up to him and shot him right in the chest. Uh, He's a very lucky man. He's alive and well today.
0: So, how are you able to get the other three? Did the first guy um, tell you about them, or how did that come come about?
1: Well, what we did is, uh, and there was a whole group of us. I'd say at least 20, twenty, thirty on the main group, and maybe fifty to a hundred in the big group that were surveilling individuals. And when it went down, and we took into custody seven suspects, and of the seven. Four were rebooked on murder charges. The district attorney felt we had solid cases on four, and three were released. Um, went to trial. It was a long trial, and uh, the the four that were held were convicted. Three of them have died in the prison system. Uh, one is alive right now.
0: Wow. Um, talking. You know, getting back to your book now. How long did it take you to write this book and put everything together?
1: That was amazing. I never thought my book would ever get written. A friend of mine from back in the 70s uh, was a Chronicle reporter by the name of Duffy Jennings. He covered a lot of my cases, and he would quote me in the paper. He would be there during my investigation. Very nice. He was my age. Very Mm -hmm. nice guy. I was a few years older, but about the same time. He was a local boy. He went to school in the city, so we had a lot in common. Well, he called me about a year and a half ago, two years ago, and he said, you know, Frank, have you ever thought about writing a book? I said, I have, but I've never found the right person to work with. Well, Duffy had just finished writing a book. It's called The Reporter's Notebook. It was a very, very good book. I read it. I complimented on his his book. And he says, can I see your material? I'd like to look at it. So I said, yeah, I send him some of my material. He called me back. He says, "Frank, I got to write this book. I want to help you." And it was during the pandemic, and we're all shut down. So between my computer, his computer, sending messages back and forth. A year and a half later, we finished our book. Twenty-six chapters, thirteen of a more uh, spectacular or dynamic cases I've ever worked, and uh, we have a finished product. Like I say, that is right now a huge success.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Here's a question about San Francisco. I mean, everybody thinks that San Francisco is this gorgeous place to be, you know, to visit, to live. I guess they just don't realize how much crime is, is underlying the city, right? I mean, is there that much crime?
1: Well, I grew up in San Francisco during the, uh, the late 40s, uh, 50s, and San Francisco truly was. Uh, in my opinion, a pretty peaceful time, 1957, there was only 27 murders in the city, mm-hmm. and the Homicide Squad at that time solved them all. But in the 60s, things started changing. And if you remember, we had uh, come to San Francisco, put a flower in your hair, right? and we had all these beautiful young women coming from all over, congregating in Golden Gate Park, singing kumbaya, drinking wine, smoking marijuana, having fun, tons of free sex. It, it looked like such a happy time. But all that turned ugly within a year or two. And these same girls were now strung out on the hard drugs and turning their bodies out to make money to buy more drugs. Mm-hmm. And we would find individuals with needles stuck in their arm, dead. Uh, it, it became quite ugly. And then not long after that, we had the influx of gays from all over the United States coming to San Francisco again because the city is so magnificent and the gays took over Castro, Polk Mm -hmm. Street area and we had the AIDS epidemic. It was like an upside down pyramid and we had no clue at that time. It was worse than what we're going through right now for the gay people. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, uh, the AIDS epidemic, uh, was transmittable, and uh, that we had all these uh, gay bathhouses where an individual, if he likes sex, he could have it all day long. Mm-hmm. And finally, uh, it was after the, the city hall murders and Diane Feinstein became mayor that she shut the bathhouses down and curbed the AIDS epidemic, and then eventually drugs were found. And, and today, uh, the, the gay... Community is uh, probably some of the most peaceful people in the city, mm-hmm. um, and, and some of the most clever. And uh, they've improved their properties. Uh, no, it's it's been a, an amazing trans, uh, transmission of of events.
0: Absolutely. Here's a question: as as a as a police officer, when you got a hold of a case, could you tell that it was going to be a big deal? I mean, every case is a big deal, obviously. Because you got to find out who did it, but like with something like 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 the Night Stalker or the Zodiac, could you tell right off the bat that this was going to be a major news thing. Uh,
1: the newspapers obviously make cases more important one more important than the other.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, the Zodiac case once those cryptic messages, yeah, that became a, a front page story every day for months. Uh, the zebra, obviously, the fact that people who were being randomly killed, mm-hmm. the, the major media across the country didn't pick up on it because the narrative was not something uh, the media wanted to promote. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was blacks killing whites. And the last thing they wanted to do was start a race war. So if that thing and press pretty much stayed in San Francisco and the surrounding area, um, the, the cases, you just never know which one's going to turn out to be a little bit out of the ordinary for some reason, either I was lucky or unlucky, I caught more than my fair share mm-hmm. of front page cases.
0: Absolutely, and let me ask you something too like with something like like the Zodiac killer that you guys don't get, how does that as a detective and you pull all that work into finding the guy? How do you feel about that? You know, when, when you miss one, for so the same, well, with the Zodiac, we've
1: never have solve that case. Uh, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: The the Zodiac, uh, everybody's uh, uncle, everybody's strange uh, uh, neighbor, everybody's uh, ex-boyfriend who was uh, temperamental. uh, These are all people that uh, were sent as as suspects in the Zodiac case. We had more leads to run down, uh, more people to check out. We had file drawers filled with names of individuals that could have been the zodiac according to witnesses
0: mm-hmm.
1: so we what we did have going for us was a fingerprint in blood it wasn't the victim's it was inside the cab it wasn't the victim's print so we knew it had to be the suspect's print everybody at the crime scene the officers the ambulance uh the coroner's people we checked all their prints it wasn't theirs so to this day We've never been able to match a print to all the thousands and thousands of suspects we've run through the system. Uh, the Zodiac case, my opinion, it most likely will never be solved, and I believe he's
0: dead. Makes sense. It makes a lot of sense because really, the, the there weren't. I mean, he the one person. The, there weren't any other uh, killings at all right after that, that 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 you could like connect to him.
1: Well, there, there were other killings in Sonoma County, and uh, I believe in Napa, uh, he had killed other people.
0: Okay. Uh, okay, the
1: Zodiac, but he became famous oh, mainly because of the I think the Clint Eastwood movie, uh, one of the Dirty Harry movies. Um, he portrayed uh, the inspector working a case very very similar to uh, Zodiac. Uh, anyhow, uh, I think. Awitz movie and the media made that case more famous uh, than the zebra uh, where we where we had multiple multiple killings
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well I can honestly tell you every time I go to Lake Berryessa, I'm always looking over my shoulder even now well you, you know and, and
1: I'm gonna tell you really straight you know I I'm, I'm so upset that people say we well, have to defund the police we and that that's the biggest mistake ever the people in the projects the people that are good people are threatened every day they live around this uh, terrorism uh like nobody else and i would go into the projects on a homicide case and i would see the fear and the tears in these witnesses eyes and they would tell me confidentially Inspector, I'd love to help you. Yes, I know who did it. But if I tell you, I would be dead tomorrow morning. Mm. These people are trapped. They live in these projects. They live in these tenements. They're the ones that are trapped among their own people. And these, some of these people are just pure evil. Mm -hmm. It starts out innocent enough selling a bag or two bags of, of drugs. Mm -hmm. And then it gets bigger because you can make more money by selling more drugs. And once you have a pocket full of money, well, somebody might rip you off. So you better get yourself a gun. Once you have a gun, now you're a potential killer. Because somebody comes to rip off your drugs, you're going to take them out. And that is the cycle I saw time and time again. Starts out innocent enough. And then it's gangs and it's drugs and it's big money. It's very, very sad for the innocent people that have to live within these confines.
0: Absolutely. I I can tell you from experience, um, there was a uh, murder out in Woodland when I first started working out there. And I remember they, they send us door to door. I mean, newspapers are, you know, <laughs> newspapers. And we get out there and I, I, I get what you're saying because we're in this 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 Latino neighborhood, and every time we knocked on a door, nobody spoke English. Yeah, that's another problem. Yeah.
1: Fortunately, now the police department has linguists that can come to your rescue and help you.
0: Right. Right. And then what happened? We I went back to the paper, got 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 someone to interpret, and then all of a sudden they spoke English once I brought the interpreter out. And I think it's a case <laughs> of like what you're talking about is because we're strangers, we're reporters trying to get the story and trying to take notes. They're afraid to talk about it.
1: Yeah. You know, I felt like I was playing an important role in keeping the city safe mm-hmm. and keep the bully cowering and afraid to commit crime. Uh, it was just such an interesting time. I, I wouldn't have traded it for anything. Looking back today, I, I think I had to be a <laughs> crazy uh I wanted to be a policeman. I wanted to be the best policeman and handling these type of cases. I got that kind of exposure. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I, I felt I had a very successful career.
0: How long did it take you to go from, uh, being a street, uh, co- street police, a street officer to becoming a detective?
1: A good question. I, uh, I started out, uh, working, uh, the Bayview, uh, the Hunter's point area. Uh, I wasn't too thrilled out there. Uh, I wanted to work the Northern Station, which is down off Van S Avenue. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, got the Tenderloin on one side, and it's got the Fillmore on the other side. So it was just constant crime. And I made a quick, quick uh, reputation for myself as a good cop, an honest cop. And uh, I, I started because when I came in, it was a, a drinking problem in the police department. Mm-hmm. and Uh, I, I didn't want to be an alcoholic. Um, so I started a softball program and all the station houses, I got the FBI involved, I got ATF, I got the sheriff's department, highway patrol, airport police, anybody that wore a badge could join the league. Mm -hmm. And it ended up being a huge success. And the chief, I'll never forget it. His name was Al Nelder at the time. He says, Frank, you did something I couldn't do. I said, what are you talking about, chief? He says, you got my cops out of the bars and onto the ball field. Thank you. So the chief recognized me. He knew I was doing good police work. He knew I wasn't a drinker and I was trying to get all his police officers on the ball field Mm -hmm. to have fun and play competitive softball. Uh, So he promoted me, I'd say after five years Mm -hmm. and I was uh, into the vice squad where I worked uh, playing clothes. Um, mostly prostitution and prostitution theft, where instead of just turning a trick, the prostitute will set up an individual with their pimp to be robbed Mm. and and strong-armed. So we were trying to make felony cases instead of just a misdemeanor prostitution arrest. My partner, Eddie Erlatz, and I were quite successful. Next thing I knew, the chief was appointing us into the Bureau of Inspectors. And that's where I wanted to be, but I knew instantly being a detective was one thing, working homicide was the pinnacle. That's, that was major leagues to me. And I always wanted to be the ball player. And if I was going to be the best ball player, you want to be in the major leagues. Mm-hmm. I wanted homicide and a couple of openings came along and that same chief appointed me and my partner at Erlutz, who were very young men. I think we're 27, 28 years old. And we went into the homicide detail and we stayed there until we retired. I was there 22 years, I think Eddie, 24 years.
0: Wow. Do you remember your first case?
1: Uh, My first homicide case? Yes. I sure do and I'm ashamed to say I lost it in trial. And I kind of blame myself and and I thought it maybe I was just inexperienced, but looking back, we didn't have all the evidence mm-hmm. it, it was a solid circumstantial evidence case mm-hmm. and the jury was 10 to two for conviction, and then they eventually worked all the way around twelve to i mean I'm sorry twelve nothing for acquittal. Mm-hmm. yeah, and it was the only case I could ever remember losing and it was my very first case.
0: Wow, wow, wow. Which case are you the most proud of?
1: I missed that, Charlotte.
0: Which uh, which case are you the most proud of?
1: Well, I think the one everybody remembers uh, me for is uh, resting uh, probably uh, one of my best friends. I always consider him a, a kid brother. His name was Dan White. He had played on my softball team. We'd won two state championships, uh, beating L.A. twice uh, for the state title. Um Dan White was a police officer. He had went into the fire department. He had served our country as a, uh, a pilot in the air force, uh, the old American boy, beautiful family. And he decides he wants to be a politician and he shows up at my desk one day and he says, Frank, uh, I want you to be the first to know, I, I'm going to become a, uh, your, your city, uh, supervisor for our old neighborhood. Out in the Portland area, uh, I looked at him. I said, You're crazy. You're not a politician. You're a fireman. You're a policeman. <laughs> you're a ball player, but you're sure to hell not a politician. Mm-hmm. Well, he said, No, I'm going to prove you wrong, Frank. And he did. He was elected and he became supervisor of our old neighborhood. And at that time, Harvey Milk was elected uh, as the first gay supervisor. Uh, and, and I think the United States, and he was elected to the uh, Castro area uh, as a representative. And it was during the reign of uh, Mayor George Moscone, and if you remember, Jim Jones uh, played a big mm-hmm. role in Moscone getting elected. And right after the election, Jones took his disciples, over four hundred of them, and he went to Guyana. And while he was there. Uh, he was being investigated. Uh, and then he made the Kool-Aid and killed over 400 people. That was 10 days before our city hall shooting. Hmm. And I'm working and I get a call that there's been a shooting up at city hall. I'm thinking it's one of Jim Jones' disciples because the papers had put in there that Some people escaped and they were coming to San Francisco. They didn't drink the Kool-Aid and they're going to be looking to kill city politicians. So when I'm heading up to city hall, I'm thinking it's going to be one of these disciples. When I get there and I climb the stairs to the mayor's office and I meet the mayor's bodyguard, a dear friend, Sergeant Jim Molinari. Jim says to me, Frank, the mayor's dead. I said, the mayor's dead. Do we have a suspect? He says, yeah. Your good friend Dan White. Wow! Said, come on, no joke. No, Dan White, Frank. I, oh my God. I was like, the mayor's dead? That was one slanted sledgehammer. And while I'm hearing my friend Dan White is the murderer? Oh, well, that day just blew up on me. I ended up taking Dan White's confession to two murders. That night, I had the... Probably one of the worst things I had to ever do in my career was go to his house, his poor wife, unsuspecting on any of this. And I had a service a search warrant on her. She was a sweet, lovely lady. Never knowing that her husband was going to wig out, kill a supervisor, kill the murder, uh, the mayor, and murder both of them. Uh, served a search warrant and at trial, uh, I'll never forget the day the jury's coming in. I'm sitting in the courtroom and the DA at that time was Joe Freitas. Comes up and sits next to me and Tom Norman, the prosecutor. He doesn't look at Tom. He looks at me. He says, Frank, what do you think the verdict's going to be? They're coming in right now. I said, well, Joe, I'm going to be honest with you. I said, I think they're going to give Moscone uh, voluntary manslaughter in the heat of passion. I said, but the fact that Dan unloaded his gun, reloaded it, walked across the hall, sought out Harvey Melk and shot him, that, that's premeditation. So you're going to get a voluntary manslaughter in first degree. Tom Norman, the prosecutor, he says, Joe, Frank's got it all wrong. It's going to be two first degrees. We were the so-called experts, and mm-hmm. both of us got it wrong. It was two voluntary manslaughter verdicts. Dan White was sentenced to a little over six years in prison. Uh, We had the White Knight riots. The city went crazy. Uh, It was just sheer madness. Uh, And and who could blame the gay community for uprising? It was like, it's okay to kill a gay guy. But it wasn't anything to do with his sex. Mm -hmm. It was all about what was happening up at City Hall, the double cross. Dan white felt he was double crossed and he sought out revenge on Moscone and Harvey milk. Had he talked to any one of his friends, including Diane Feinstein, who was also very close to Dan white at the time. If he had talked to anybody, I know they could have talked Dan out, out of being so stupid, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. yeah, that's the case. I'm probably most known for
0: it was a question. Um, Why did you become a police officer to begin with?
1: You know, I, I grew up, uh, the television was a new invention Mm -hmm. and the first shows on TV were the cowboy movies. Um, there was one show I really liked. It was called rocket squad with captain, uh, James Braddock. Um, and I seem to have an attraction to, you know, to figuring out crimes, who did it. Mm-hmm. And there was also the start of a series called Dragnet with Jack Webb and Ben Alexander as his sidekick. And they always seem to track down their man within half an hour or an hour <laughs>
0: Yeah. To
1: time out for three three commercials. So uh, <laughs> I soon found out it's not that easy uh all, all cases, uh, are not like homicide cases.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Homicide cases can take years, uh, sometimes many years. So you, you hope to have a suspect within 24, 48 hours, but that doesn't always happen.
0: Here's a question. Um, you know, the, uh, the killer that they got up here in, in, in Sacramento—they they got him with that 23andMe stuff, you know, where somebody had filled out, you know, you know, filled out their stuff for their DNA and all that. How do you feel about that stuff? Is, is, do you think that's helping more to, to get people? Oh,
1: I think it's amazing. I, you know, I, I don't have a bleeding heart for criminals. I, mm-hmm. I, my people I cry for are victims of violent crime. And I think anything like 23 uh, and me, um, I think it's just fantastic if you could use anything to help break a major case. Uh, that that killer, uh, I'm just glad he's off the street.
0: I am too. It's a shock too that he was, he was a former police officer. That's what's scary.
1: Well, the thing about a bad cop, they know all the tricks yeah. and all the the things that they have to do to avoid detection. So that's probably why he was so uh, like and sneaky and successful is because of his experience. Uh, it's sad when you have a, a crooked cop, because I, I'll tell you all my years, I never had so much respect for anybody as I did for all the good police officers I work with. And yes, there will always be that one or two that ruin it for everybody and they stand out mm-hmm. because the media immediately seizes upon them and their front page story. And people think, wow, all cops are like that. Just not the case. No, your cop is your best friend. Uh, I, I love them men I work with and I had so much respect for them.
0: What do you say to someone that wants to go into law enforcement?
1: I missed that one again.
0: What do you say to someone who wants to go into law enforcement?
1: Well, it's not quite the same as when I went in.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, today they're they're playing by, their, their hands are pretty much tied behind their back. Uh, but you're going to be given a set of rules to play by, as I was,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that's your job. I, I still think it's one of the most honorable jobs I could have ever chosen. It's It's a dedicated job. Uh, You're right there with the nurses, the firemen, uh, the policemen. uh, It's a very dedicated profession. Um, People do respect you. Good people respect you. Obviously, just the opposite. The bad people have no respect for you, uh, and they want to abuse and hurt you. Uh, I'm just hoping someday society realizes the policeman
0: really is your friend. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one last question that I ask everybody, you got your book, you're standing on a street in Las Vegas and there's uh, other guys with similar books like yours. What do you get? How do you get people to, to come in and look at your book and buy your book? Well, all
1: I can tell you is I had three capital murder cases all going at the same time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The capital murder cases, it, it, it's a career case for any homicide detective. I had three going at the same time probably had six or seven in my career so i i don't know if there's anybody out there that quite had the career that i had regarding serious crime uh in a city uh with the magnitude of san francisco mm-hmm. uh no, no i i would say you have to read this book just to see five henry seven is the real deal the oh, five okay. again stood for The uh, inspectors bureau, Henry stood for homicide, and the number seven, that was me.
0: Absolutely. Frank, I want to thank you for coming on. I appreciate it so much.
1: God bless you, Charlotte. Enjoy
0: doing your show. Okay, sir. Well, you have a good evening. Okay, and I will run your information um, after the show is over. In fact, where where can people find you, sir?
1: Uh, You can get it at Amazon, Mm -hmm. or you can go to frankfalzon.com. And I'll be glad to send you an autograph
0: copy frankfalzon.com. Fair enough. All right, sir. You have a great holiday and thank you so, so much. Thank you. Good night. Good night. night. Okay, gang, let me get back on screen here. That was Frank Falzon, Detective Sacramento. I almost said Sacramento, San Francisco PD. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Fascinating to hear about the Night Stalker. I remember the Night Stalker. I also remember the East area rapist who I referred to in the end there, you know, that they got 23 and me. So there've been some interesting cases. Anyhow, tomorrow we're shifting gears. We're going to be talking about Atlantis, Atlantis and some ancient history with Mark Carlotto. And he has some theories that Atlantis may be older than everybody thinks. Okay. So he's going to be on tomorrow, six 30 with us Pacific to uh, talk about that. Hey, if you like the show tonight, please be sure to, uh, Hit that like button and uh, share it. Share it with people that you know. That's what we want. Share it with five people. If you don't like it, share it with five people anyway, because we're just trying to keep getting the word out on this show. Okay? But uh, we are looking for likes and follows. So if you're watching, again, if you're watching from Facebook and you like what you heard tonight, please be sure to hit that like button and and the follow button. Just like on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, because we're trying to get get our subscriber numbers up and all that good stuff. And again, now there's 452 videos sitting over there. Right after tonight, so uh, yeah, you know, you can check out all the different topics. Also, uh, for people that maybe don't want to sit here and look at me or or look at the screen, I do have an RSS feed that goes out, and we are at, and we are on every every platform, Apple, Spreaker, you name it, that we're out there. You know, iHeartRadio, you can find us. We're everywhere. And just beware that on Apple, there's two versions of California Haunts Radio. There's this version of it. And there's also the old version that I did on Blog Talk. So all those shows are over there at Apple. Plus, these are on, and they're two separate. It'll look like two separate shows. So when you're looking for them, that's how you find them. Anyway, I want to thank everybody for for coming and tuning in today. I know everybody's busy getting their little gifts together and getting stuff together for the holidays and baking and all that good stuff. I also want to remind you all, if you're interested in a special holiday treat, Saturday, Medium Nancy Mats is going to be available to do private readings for people and those are five minute readings and we're only going to charge $12 per reading and it'll be a private reading. So that means anybody else that's, that's around only allowing 10 people The all, all their ability to speak and everything is going to be cut off. They won't be able to hear you. And after the reading, I will send you a copy of the reading as well. So you have a copy of that. The way to do that is through Venmo at California haunts. Just uh, sign up over there. Pay the, you know, pay if you want, pay the $12 and, I'll get you signed up and get you linked in to, to come on over to StreamYard for your reading. That's a five-minute reading with Medium Nancy mats You can ask her any question you want. Or you can ask her one question, and then if she's still within the five minutes, you can follow up with another question. It's that easy, right? So, yeah, so check that out, and uh, I'm going to have something up. It's, it's over at Meetup already. I'll have something up on Facebook for that later on today. Anyway, I want to say again, thank you guys for coming. And if you, like I said, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies We're equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. And I'm going to do this tonight. You see that ticker floating along the bottom? That's because California Haunts Paranormal Team does not take any money to investigate or anything like that. So everything comes out of my pocket. So if something, like even for the radio show, if something breaks or the the electric bill or the internet bill or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I have to come up with it. And it it can get kind of hard after a while. So if you could help me out a little bit, help keep the show on the air, and help me keep my paranormal team going, that would be great. That's at uh, paypal.me at California Haunts, or again, Venmo at California Haunts. All right, well, anyway, I'm going to get you his information. And uh, yeah, do it through his website. You get that autograph book, because this book is really good. I read the book. It's a fantastic book. So here we go. His website is frankfalzon.com. Falzon is spelled F-A-L-Z-O-N, and Frank Falzon is lowercase.com. And the book, again, is San Francisco Homicide Inspector 5 Henry 7. And you can either get that at his website or at Amazon.com. Okay, guys, again, thank you for coming tonight. I will see you tomorrow. Have a good evening. And here we go.